I'm going to continue uh, our study of the Gospel of Mark. Pastor Cody has been leading us uh, through this uh, wonderful account as we've been uh, following along, and, and Mark's been answering this question for us of who is Jesus and why does that uh, matter? How, what does that mean for our life of faith? And, and, and in many ways, the Gospel of Mark can be uh, summarized as the, the stronger one who suffers, the Son of God who suffers. And, and in fact, in some respects, the entire Gospel of Mark uh, can be divided into those two halves. And the, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is about the strength and authority of Jesus, the stronger one. And the, and the second half of Mark is about the one who suffers. And so as we've been just now getting into the Gospel of Mark, we've been looking at the authority of Jesus, the strength of Jesus. We've, we've looked at how he, ha- he teaches with an authority greater and unlike the scribes, how he has the power to cast out demons, how he has the power to heal, to make the, the lame walk, to make the, the sick well to make the leper cleanse. We've, we've seen how he takes uh, and claims the power to forgive sins, something only God could do, and that he is the one who has the power to heal those who are spiritually sick and the, and the sinner. We're going to continue to see the authority of Jesus as we look at three different episodes, three moments where uh, Jesus... Uh, um, upsets the apple cart, if you will, the religiously established to help us understand who he is and what that means for our life of faith. We will see uh, that a a Jesus here who, as C.S. Lewis described of Aslan in his allegory, he is no tame lion. So let's turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. If you're Uh, Using a pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 992. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. We will read through chapter 3, verse 6. Beginning with verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it? that John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry and in need. In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. 
Another time he, he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The word of the Lord. Three episodes we're going to look at today. Three, three events where we learn so much about who Jesus is and what it means for our life of faith. And, and we begin with this first one, this question about fasting. The, the uh, religious leaders, we know from early in Mark, have been bothered and challenged by what Jesus is doing. They've been seeking to find a, a way to discredit him. And so they, 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 they start here with a question. You know, this question about how Jesus' disciples are not fasting, even though the disciples of John and the, and the Pharisees are. So the question is ostensibly about the disciples' behavior, but you understand it really is a question about their teacher. They're, and they're asking why the disciples of Jesus aren't fasting. They're challenging the teaching of Jesus. It would, be, uh, it would be similar, I suppose, like, with if someone came up to my seminary students and, and, and they said to me, you know, why is it that the seminary students of the other professors are passing the competency exams, but your seminary students are not? They're really not wondering if my students are incompetent. They're wanting to know if I am, right? That, so it's that kind of question. And by, my, my students pass their, their competency exams, so make sure that's on the record. Um, but, so they asked Jesus uh, about this fasting, and, and, and I think for us to understand what is happening here, it might be helpful for us to spend just a second to realize what is not being asked. This isn't about Jesus' view on fasting. We know, uh, we know from uh, the, the greater gospel story that Jesus taught about how you should be when you fast. We also know that Jesus fasted himself. He fasted uh, after his baptism, right, before he began his ministry when he was in the wilderness. And he'll have a fast uh, during the, the, the Passion Week towards the end. We know that Jesus practiced fasting. We know Jesus taught on how to fast. So the question isn't, about uh, does Jesus support fasting, if you will. And the key to that is to realize uh, who is being described here as partners or pairs, if you will. The disciples of John, which would be John the Baptist, and the Pharisees. You see, you couldn't find two groups that were more at odds with each other than those who followed John the Baptist and the Pharisees. And so uh, the, the question becomes, what is it then that they held in common, if you will, that allows them to be paired? Because keep in mind, John the Baptist said of the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, who warned you about the coming destruction? He wasn't pro-Pharisee. 
John the Baptist uh, saw in, in Jesus the one who was promised. He, he baptized Jesus. He said, I must be less so that you would be more. His view of Jesus was completely different than the Pharisees' view of Jesus. So this isn't one of those things like, hey, both of these groups fast. Why not you? We really want to ask, what did those two groups hold in common? The kind of thing that the first century Jew would have readily understood that through 2,000 years we have simply forgotten. Here's what they held in common. Both the disciples of John the Baptist, John the Baptist himself, and the Pharisees looked for forward to a time when God's kingdom would come and he would vindicate his people and, and judge the wicked, when he would establish his kingdom. And, and they would fast, uh, not just simply in recognition of, of certain festivals or, or, or certain practices, but they would also choose to fast, to be um, earnestly yearning for the coming of God's rule and reign. So when they're asking Jesus, how is it that John's disciples fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples are not, what they're essentially asking of Jesus is, do you not care? Do you not seek for God's rule to come and be established and, and, and show that by fasting? Right? And if we understand that, that that's the heart of the question, then we better understand Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is essentially, what an absurd thing to ask. Jesus' answer is simply to say, I'm going to give you a picture of the absurdity of what you think my disciples should be doing. And he describes a wedding and how inappropriate it is to fast at a wedding. See, the, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting for the coming of the king. And Jesus says of his disciples, why should they fast for the coming of the king when they are with the king? The king has come. And it's a celebration. I mean, it, to, to fast at a wedding is, is really absurd. Have you thought about it? Have you ever been like, hey... How was the Williams wedding? It was great. We fasted. What? You would never do that. When someone asks you how a wedding is, what do you say? You were like, oh, the service was nice, which means brief. uh, um, uh, uh, There'll be a few comments about the dress. Not nearly as many comments as the bride and the mother of bride think there should be, but there'll be a few comments about the dress. There'll be comments about how lovely the couple look, and then you talk about the food. Right? How was the food? And, and you sort of, you kind of enjoy those weddings that have a little bit more food. I love the buffet weddings. You know, the, the, the kind you just want to pull up a chair to and say, hello, old friends, as you're just <laughs> beginning to eat. Right? You talk, like, the, there's something about eating at a wedding that goes together. You don't fast at a wedding. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's like when you're with me. Right? It's a celebration. It's a feast. It's enjoyment. The disciples shouldn't be fasting and in hopes of the kingdom coming because the king has come. When we gather, church, we should be celebrating, right? We should be celebrating that the king has come. 
But you see, Jesus didn't come in any way that sort of fit what the, uh, those who were religiously established thought it should be. You know, the, the coming of the kingdom didn't follow lockstep with the way the, the regulations said it should. It was different. It was new wine. New wine doesn't go into old wineskins. New wine goes into new wineskins. And this is what Jesus does. Yeah, he comes in and he's new wine. He's not interested in uh, improving. He's not interested in upgrading. He's interested in new. He's not interested in coming into our church and our lives and making us a better church or better people. He wants to come and make us new. New wine into old wineskins. We're to celebrate because the king has come. We move into this second episode and we see once again there is criticism, there is controversy. Whereas the first one asks, why is it that the disciples are not fasting? This one now focuses on their actions during the Sabbath. In verse, in verse 23, uh, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? The, the Sabbath was at the heart of their identity, of Jewish identity in the first century. It was at the heart of it. You know, the, the Sabbath is, is, is in the Ten Commandments. They were, the people of, of Israel were commanded to keep the Sabbath. They were commanded to set it apart as holy. They were told to not work on the Sabbath. It was, it was part of who they were. You know, and and, and this, in the time of the first century when, when there was this great push to make everyone uh, act like the Greeks to make everyone act like the Romans, to make everyone sort of follow a a pagan identity. Uh, There were certain things that the Jewish people tried to hold on to, to hold on to who they were. When one of them was Sabbath, the other was dietary laws, the third was circumcision. These were the things that identified who they were. It's not surprising then when, when pagan rulers would come through, they would often make resting on the Sabbath illegal because they knew that was something that was an identifier. They would, they would say, no, you have to work on the Sabbath. It was, it was at the heart of who they were. And of course, one of the great questions then became, well, what, is it, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? What constitutes work? And there would be this an entire religious system put in place of rules and regulations. How much you could carry, how much you couldn't carry, how far you could walk, um, what, what type of medical practices were permitted? Uh, what could you do uh, regarding uh, caring for the, uh, someone who dies? Like, so, for example, one of the regulations that I find, find interesting was is if a building collapsed on the Sabbath, you could rush in and begin clearing rocks to see if there was anyone who survived. And if someone survived, you could pull them out of the rubble. But if you found a corpse, you had to immediately stop and do no more work. These were the kind of things they put in place. And so here we have the disciples, uh, you know, uh, they're walking along and they're picking uh, these, uh, 
these uh, pieces of grain, right? And they're eating it. And the Pharisees are saying, Hi, your disciples are violating the Sabbath. Notice they weren't being accused of stealing, right? This wasn't stealing. In fact, one of the things that was in the Old Testament, that was in the law, was that when a farmer planted his crop, when he planted his grain or he grew his orchard, that it was expected that those who would be hungry, that might be passing along, could pluck the the heads of grain and eat them, could pull the fruit down and eat it. It, it, That wasn't stealing. It It may be your property, but you were expected to allow portions of your property to be used for those who are hungry. I think we've missed that a little bit. But that's not what they're accusing. So they're not accusing them of stealing. What they're saying is you're harvesting. You're working. And harvesting wasn't allowed on the Sabbath. And so they come to him and and, and say, look, your disciples uh, are violating the Sabbath. And if if they can show that Jesus is violating the Sabbath and his people are violating the Sabbath, something that is the core of God's law, then they can discredit him. And Jesus immediately sort of goes, as he always so often does, he just goes... uh, you know, debate, debate club awesome. Like he, he just has a way of turning something to this and he goes by telling them a story about David. He cites a time when uh, David was on the run and his people uh, uh, were with him and, and Saul, King Saul was chasing after him. And during this time when David was on the run, uh, he's hungry, his companions are hungry. They go into a holy sanctuary and they eat bread that was set apart as holy, that only the priest could eat. Now, mind you, the law was very clear. It was against the law to eat that bread, unless you were a priest. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, says to them, Have you not read? Which, incidentally, is just a brilliant way to begin an argument. Right. Here are the Pharisees. Like, their whole training and livelihood was in the reading of Scripture. And he turns to them and says, have you not read? That'd be, that'd be like saying to a carpenter, have you ever seen a hammer? Right, you know, I mean, there's just, it's, the insult is rich. It's not a simple question. He says, have you not read about what David did? And, and in presenting this story, he says, David clearly broke the law. But he didn't do anything wrong. David clearly broke the law, but he didn't do anything wrong. You see, for Jesus' argument to work, there had to be pretty much universal agreement that in David feeding his companions and feeding himself, he was not violating uh, the, the, the spirit and the intent of that law. I mean, that, that law was in place so that the, the priests could be cared for, right? That law was in place so that they would be able to be fed. And, and so Jesus is saying, look, David did things that the law said would be wrong, but it was also right, and, and, and it, this, this idea becomes a, a, this, an argument of, of trying to present in front of the Pharisees, man, you're missing it. You're so consumed with the details of the rules and the regulations, you've lost the intent that was there to begin with. 
God's intent is to care for his people. God's intent is for his people to, to be fed, to be nourished, to be cared for. So what his disciples were doing wasn't violating the Sabbath. They were hungry and they were in need. Jesus could have ended it there. It's been a good debate point. Right? He would have brought in an example from Scripture. He would counter their argument. Uh, he, he would have made a solid point of debate. But Jesus is no tame lion. He's not interested in making a solid point of debate. He doesn't end there. He goes just a little bit further. Verse 27 and 28. And then he said to him, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Notice what he just did. He went from debating what is lawful on the Sabbath to declaring intent of the Sabbath. He went from uh, a debate as if this harvesting, is it not harvesting, to saying, I can tell you why the Sabbath exists and that I am Lord of the Sabbath. That is a divine position. That is not a debate position. That is a position that says, I know why. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses to govern uh, uh, Israel and the Israelites, and so they would understand what it meant to be holy. And Jesus is saying, yes, and I know why. And I am Lord of the Sabbath. I can tell you my disciples aren't doing anything wrong because I'm the one that decides if it's wrong. I am Lord of the Sabbath. That is a different position than simply debating. And, and he, he sits there and he's presenting this picture of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath was not meant to be an occasion for rules and regulations. The Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, holding the Sabbath, was not meant to be uh, an opportunity for, uh, for work, to, to be a burden. It was not meant to be something that would control you. It was a gift from God. It was given by God to his people so that they may rest so that they may be refreshed, so that they may come together and worship and and be able to lay down their burdens and and, and their wearied life and find refreshment that comes from being in one another's company and in the company of God. That's what the Sabbath was for. It It wasn't to create a burden. It was to relieve burdens. Our God is such a great gift giver that he gave us the Sabbath. You know, it's, it's so easy in, in, in my life to be just consumed by my schedule. To just simply be exhausted because all I do is work. To have no downtime. And, and you know, with, uh, with now, with, with texting, with email and all of that, work just doesn't, doesn't, you don't ever clock out. Your kids' lives, they never clock out. Right? There's this constant sort of stress, this ability to always work. And then what ends up happening is church gets in the way. Gathering together in small groups gets in the way. Coming together as a church body gets in the way because we're simply tired of all the work that we do. That whenever we can take something off our schedule, it seems what we take off our schedule is gathering together. But it's in our gathering together that we are restored. 
that we are refreshed, that we rest. I can guard religiously my kids' uh, uh, academic, athletic, and social life and yet be completely negligent about their life of rest and worship. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to just simply do what the Pharisees did. I don't want to simply say, okay, we're going to take the rules of the Sabbath, which was Friday night to Saturday night, and now create sort of a new set of rules and apply it to Sunday morning. I want to be careful that we don't all of a sudden say, well, here's what you can do on Sunday morning, and here's what you can't do on Sunday. Because it's a day of rest, so follow all of these rules when I'm, in effect, doing the exact same thing that the Pharisees were doing. I want to be careful there. You know, I want to be careful before I say, you can work this job or you can't work that job. I always find it ironic, by the way, that some of the people who hold most ardently to you can't do certain things on Sunday because it's work will be the same ones who are going, look at this NFL football player who's a Christian. Isn't he great? He works on Sunday, right? I mean, we have to be careful about the decisions we make and the postures we have. I'm not saying, do this, don't do that. What I'm saying is, my Lord, who created everything, has said to his people, rest together in me and be refreshed. That the posture of how we approach being together is to be one that seeks to be resting. There's something that happens when we come together, brothers and sisters. When the the world kind of slips away and we can breathe and we can rest in him. A rest that comes from no other place. A rest that comes not from sleeping in or taking a nap. A rest that comes from being together. If the the first application, you will, of of the uh, question about fasting is church, celebrate when you gather, I would say the second application is church. Let's gather so we can rest and be refreshed. And let's hold that. Because that's what the Lord of the Sabbath says. He doesn't want us to have a rule or regulation. He wants us to rest. As Jesus continues to be this new wine that doesn't fit old wineskins, that doesn't fit the established religiosity, we now move to this third episode. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up. In front of everyone. And then Jesus asked, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they remain silent. Again, it's the Sabbath. And again, it's the question of what will Jesus do on the Sabbath? Because you could give medical attention on the Sabbath under certain circumstances. So, for example, midwives will still allowed to work on the Sabbath, which is good, right? I don't think you could really say to a woman giving birth, can you wait to sunset? Because I can't really help you till then. 
No, you could, you could give if someone was drowning. You could rescue them. If someone uh, was on, on the verge of death, you could rescue them. But if someone didn't have a life-threatening injury on the Sabbath, you were to refrain. And so here's this occasion where uh, Jesus is in a synagogue. He's getting ready to preach. The, those who are out to trap Jesus know he's there. They also know in that synagogue is a man with a withered hand. And they're, they're sitting there, and in their mind, they're going, okay, I bet we have him now. Keep in mind, they realize Jesus can heal this man. That doesn't seem to stop them in their thinking. They know he can heal, and they're going, let's see if he has the audacity to heal this man who isn't about to die. He has a withered hand. And if he does, ha-ha! That's how far they've come in in being unable to uh, recognize who Jesus is. That if Jesus would heal someone on the Sabbath, he must be contrary to God. And Jesus knows this. He knows this is what they're doing. So he's there, and I, always, I picture this, and that, and as I think about the scene, I, I, so I see Jesus, I see him standing up, I see him preaching. I see so the religious leaders kind of looking at him, looking at the withered hand, man with the withered hand, looking at Jesus, looking at the man with the withered hand, kind of like, hey, Jesus, have you seen this guy? Look at his hand. I see this, I, I picture this man with the withered hand just sitting there, like knowing something's up, but not exactly what. Mark doesn't tell us that the man came up and said, Jesus, heal me. Mark doesn't tell us this man did anything. The man's just sitting there. Jesus can heal in a variety of ways. We already know as a reader of Mark that he's healed on the Sabbath. Remember when he went to Peter's house and healed his uh, mother-in-law of the fever? That was on the Sabbath, but that was a private event. Nobody else knew he had done that. Everybody else that wanted to be healed waited till the Sabbath was over before they came to Jesus. We know he's already healed on the Sabbath, so we know what he's going to do. But Jesus is sitting there, I mean, standing there, and he's, he's, he could have made this a private event. He could have just finished his message about the coming of the kingdom, had him sing a song, and then pulled the man aside, gone behind the synagogue, and healed him. He could have made it a private event. Jesus is no tame lion. And so he brings the man up and he puts him up in front of everyone. And just as the healing of the paralytic was going to become a display and a picture of his power to forgive sins, what he's about to do for this man is going to be a picture of what true worship looks like, of what the purpose of the Sabbath looks like, of why he came. And he puts this man in front of him and he asks this question. He, he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Of course they did. Because it's, it's never lawful to do evil. And it's always lawful to do good especially on the Sabbath, which is a day set apart to honor God. It's never lawful to kill. 
It's always lawful to save a life, especially on the Sabbath. And when Jesus puts this man in front of him, he says, he says everyone in this room knows I can restore this man's hand. Everyone here knows it. My, my power and ability to restore is known wide. Everyone here knows I can do this. The question is, what will I choose? Will I choose to restore him or not? And he, he looks at these religious leaders, and, he, and, and, and Mark tells us how he uh, looked around them. And the, and the Greek word that's actually used there has this idea of evaluating, look to evaluate. He's evaluating them, and he becomes angered because of their stubbornness. They remain silent. Here is Jesus standing with this man. He says, I can restore him. And the entire synagogue, especially the religious leaders, should have said, yes, restore this man. But they didn't. They didn't say a word. Because they didn't care about the restoration of that man. What they cared about was would Jesus fall in line with what they think should happen. And it angered him. And Jesus restored that man's hand because he had the power to do it. And he wanted to restore him because that's what Jesus does. And that's what I need my Jesus to do. I need my Jesus to look at me and to restore me. I need my Jesus to look at you and to restore you. If my heart was laid open and it was, it was bare and you could see all the junk in my life and you could see all the sin and you can see all the places I've stumbled, you would say, Mark, you have no business being up there in front of us. Mark, you shouldn't be here. You, you would be right to call me fool. And the same would be said of you if all of your heart and your sin was laid bare. But Jesus looks at you. He sees you. He looks at me. He sees me and says, I will restore you. Because that's what Jesus does. That's what worship is. Jesus restores the withered. Even though it cost him the cross. I think it's important, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish up here, but I think it's important for us to see that he also chose to do this restoration in worship, not just privately. Here's why I think that's important. Church, we can never restore in the way that Jesus restores. We can never, we do not have the power to make someone who is a sinner into a saint, an enemy of God, into a child of God. Only Jesus can restore that way. But we can restore as he restores. We can look at those people who um, society has declared to be broken and withered and say, I see you. You're welcome here. We can look at those people who, whether it's, the, it's because of the, the color of, of their skin or it's their zip code or it's their, um, uh, the, the brokenness that's in their lives that's been ravaged by uh, the sins of this world or whether it's because of their, their, their mental uh, and emotional struggles or, or their, their, uh, uh, their addictions or whatever's just wrecking their life in which all of society says broken and withered. We can see them and say, you're welcome here. Come be restored. 
We can see them as he sees them. And not, and not worry about is something proper and is something appropriate. Not worry about does that fit with what church does. We can restore and be restored. Here's Jesus. And he says to us, I am your king. So let's celebrate. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's rest. I am the one who restores you. So let's be restored. He is no tame lion. And for that I am so thankful. God is good. He is good all the time. Let's pray. Father, we come as your church. We come because you have called us. We come because you are our king. Lord, let us not be morose. Let us be full of joy. Let us celebrate for the king has come. Lord, we, we gather, so let us gather and celebrate. Lord, let us gather together and find rest in you and find rest in the company of one another. Let us care about the well-being of each other. Let us not put rules and regulations ahead of the health of each other. Let us, let us commit to resting together. Let us guard our rest. Lord, help us to rest in you. And Lord, help us to remember that you are the one who restores and that when we gather together, we are restored. And we are restored in the great work that you're doing. But that great work also is our work. That we proclaim who you are. Lord, you are the stronger one. The stronger one who suffers. And for this we are most thankful. It is in your name, the name of the King and the Lord of the Sabbath. The name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.